The Indian Point nuclear reactor just outside New York City shut down permanently as of Friday, April 30th, 2021. Huzzah! We're free and clear! Aren't we? Well, we won, except not really. You see, while a permanent shutdown of a nuclear reactor is a very good thing and cause for celebration, it only shifts the battleground of effort because of the decades of highly radioactive nuclear waste that were produced during the operation. And that's why, when a genuine expert on these matters explains... When you have a nuclear reactor, the fundamental fact about nuclear power is that it cannot generate electricity without simultaneously generating hundreds of radioactive poisons, which never were found in nature before 1940. These are brand new to the evolutionary context in which the human race has existed. And those are the dangerous materials that we have to keep out of the environment. And that's what's in all the waste generated by any and every operating nuclear reactor. So when you hear the hard, long-suppressed facts about what decommissioning a nuclear reactor really consists of, and how long we have to control the radioactive waste and keep it out of the environment, you begin to understand the forever nature of that terrible, inescapable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we celebrate the closure of the Indian Point nuclear reactor, only 25 miles from Manhattan, and we've got two interviews with which we do it. First, we speak with Mana Joe Green, who for 20 years has been environmental director for Hudson River Sloop Clearwater and one of the leaders in the battle to shut down Indian Point. We acknowledge the win before launching into a preview of what the next level of work needs to be. Then a cornerstone interview with Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. He goes over the reality of decommissioning that the nuclear industry does not want any of us to understand. From the radioactive isotopes produced by the nuclear chain reaction and the half-lives of each of these that nobody wants to talk about, and he includes some insights on Japan's planned release of radioactive water into the Pacific and that there is a relatively easy way to cut down on the dangers to the ocean ecosystem if TEPCO and the Japanese government can be persuaded to have some patience. Plus, we will have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Melinda Gates will be talking about in her divorce proceedings from Bill. All of it coming up in just a few moments. 
Today is Tuesday, May 4th, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Top story in the U.S. this week is the shutdown of the Indian Point Reactor, ending the nuclear era for the New York City area. We'll have more details about this shutdown during our two featured interviews today, and on the website we will link to a counterpunch article by Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health that spells out its history and the advantages of shutting it down now. In Texas, a bill is advancing through their house that seeks to ban spent nuclear fuel, high-level radioactive waste, from being stored in Texas. Great example of NIMBY. As plans by waste control specialists in Andrews County, Texas, moves forward with plans at the federal level to store this dangerous waste, state lawmakers are aiming to ban the materials from entering the state. But House Bill 2692 would also give waste control specialists a big break on state fees it pays for its existing disposal facility for lower-level radioactive waste. Governor Greg Abbott wrote to the NRC last year, asking them to deny the license application, stating that the proposal presents, quote, a greater radiological risk than Texas is prepared to allow. He's joined in this opposition by oil companies that operate in the region and environmentalists. Talk about your strange bedfellows. In New Mexico, The Los Alamos National Laboratory is proudly touting its return to Santa Fe, initially providing lab space for 75 technicians and planned to expand to 500 more. Why? LANL, as it is referred to, is simply running out of room in Los Alamos and needs space to expand as its mission does the same. And what is that mission? Ramping up to expand production of nuclear bomb cores at LANL and the Savannah River site in South Carolina. Congress has tasked them with producing 88-0 plutonium pits per year. These are the triggering devices for nuclear warheads, so that means 80 plutonium pits per year by 2030. So while Lanel proudly touts the fact that nothing nuclear is going to be happening in Santa Fe, indeed, it's making room for more nuclear to happen at its base in Los Alamos. Japan's announced decision to release one and a quarter million tons of radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean in 2022 is sparking further protests around the globe. Hundreds of South Korean fishermen across the country held protests on Friday, April 30th, calling on Japan to reverse its decision About 800 fishermen participated in rallies at ports in nine cities, according to South Korea's National Federation of Fisheries Cooperative. Fishermen held anti-Japan banners with slogans such as, Condemn Irresponsible Nuclear Attack. And as one fisherman who had worked in the industry for 38 years said, Why is Japan doing this? How could they do such a bad thing against the sea? Don't they eat fish? And the Pacific activist group Young Solara have added their voice to the calls against Japan dumping the nuclear radioactive waste into the Pacific Ocean. Young Solara's Tale Mangione said she was shocked by the decision. She said, Japan has been described pretty unflatteringly in the past as a house without a toilet in regards to its nuclear power industry. This act is an example of possible transboundary harm. 
in Finland, Finovia's nuclear power plant construction in Pajoka on Finland's northwest coast has been hit by further delays, increasing costs by around 1 billion euros, and added another year to the already four-year delay in its construction. Nuclear construction over schedule and over budget. Is anyone surprised? And now for this week's exercise in nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out a week. Vacation time is fast upon us, and with COVID restrictions on travel being dialed back, many people are determined to go out and have a life affirming adventure getaway. And so they are heading straight to Chernobyl. That's right. Since the 2019 HBO hit series Chernobyl aired around the world, people are just dying to go visit the radiologically contaminated site. Literally dying. But of course, not immediately. Chernobyl anticipates a major tourism bump in the wake of the historic nuclear disaster's 35th anniversary on April 26th of this year. Tour companies tout the area as, quote, safe for tourists, before adding, some areas are higher risk than others, and recommending that visitors avoid lingering near them. But even lingering in the so-called safe for tourists areas puts everyone there at risk. Just because people can walk away today doesn't mean that they're not taking home with them some unwanted souvenirs. Radioactive particles sequestered away in their hair, on their clothes, in their lungs, maybe in their digestive tract from food or liquids consumed while on site. Of course, by the time that souvenir makes itself known through cancer, infertility, birth defects, autoimmune conditions, or a wide range of other diseases, or death, it could be years or decades from now. And with so much time elapsed, it's doubtful that anyone will trace their health breakdown back to this wild post- or mid-COVID excursion. But just because you don't see the connection doesn't mean it's not there. And that's why anyone who is crazy enough to go to Chernobyl for a little vacay in a hot, meaning radiologically hot, climate, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Here's the first of this week's two featured interviews. It's not often that we have something great to celebrate, but here it is. The last of the Indian Point nuclear reactors was permanently shut down on Friday, April 30th. To find out what it was like to finally reach this milestone and learn about the battles that are still ahead of us, we spoke with Mauna Jo Green. She is the environmental director for Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, and has been one of the leaders in the battle to shut down Indian Point, a nuclear reactor facility that is located only 25 miles as the crow flies from Manhattan. I spoke with Manajean on Friday, April 30th, the day that it actually happened. Manajo Green, what a terrific day to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. I am thrilled to be here. It's been a long haul. But today is a critically important day in New York and in the whole country in terms of nuclear power. First off, my heartiest congratulations to you and Riverkeeper and all the people and organizations that worked so hard towards the shutdown of Indian Point. Yes, thank you. It's been, as I said, a long haul. 
our founders, the people who founded Clearwater, even before the sloop was built and launched, were opposed to siting a nuclear power plant so near New York City, 25 miles from New York City, 200 million people live within 50 miles of Indian Point. And then 9-11 came around and then executive Andy Maley and I arrived at the office the next day, took one look at each other and said, oh my God, Indian Point. Had the plane that took out one of the World Trade Towers gone down 60 seconds sooner, it could have dislodged the unprotected fuel pools, dislodged the water and caused a fuel pool fire, not unlike what happened at Fukushima. So we've been working on it intensely since 9-11. We formed an Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition, and we brought in experts to educate the community Over the years, we've held multiple technical conferences, including with Gordon Edwards, who's a wonderful teacher in this regard, helps people to understand a very technical, complicated issue. And over the years, held many technical briefings, congressional briefings, regional forums, and educated the community. So I would say that the decision makers in New York are very well-educated and up-to-date. But the main reason that Indian Point closed was that it was approaching 40 years of operation. And while it was profitable when it was new, as the signs of aging, including steam boiler ruptures and siren failures and many other equipment failures, it started to become more costly to operate the facility than the profit they were making. And so as much as we wanted it closed for the danger that it was posing, There was also an economic reason, and that's why Riverkeeper, the New York State Attorney General, and Entergy, who owns, still owns, but not for much longer, the Indian Point reactors agreed to a settlement agreement to close the plant three years ago. It was mainly a financial decision, and also the fact that in their application for 20-year relicensing, they were losing. There was a problem with coastal consistency. There were problems around aging management. And we had, Clearwater had a unique contention around environmental justice. So between the legal landscape and the economic shift from being a profitable facility to being an economic drain, that's really why the decision was made. And the benefit is that the facility will be much safer once the plant is closed and it'll stop making the thousands of tons of nuclear waste it has generated over the last 40 years. Going back in history a little bit, in 2000, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission rated Indian Point as the most trouble-plagued plant in the country. What are some of the issues that have come up through the years that have earned it this label? As I mentioned, one of the main reasons for the danger is its location. 
So if there's a problem at Indian Point, there would be vast impacts to as many as 20 million people that live or work within the facility. But I did mention a steam boiler rupture, transformer explosions, contamination in leaking and contamination of the groundwater under the plant, which exceeds drinking water standards and is leaking into the Hudson River. There are other communities that do take their drinking water from the Hudson River and many other internal problems that were symptoms of an aging facility. So between its location and the operational and functional problems that it had been having, the other danger comes from storing the fuel that it generated in overcrowded fuel pools. Originally, the plant was built for 20-year operation and given another 20-year extension. But those fuel pools were not designed for the amount of nuclear waste that was generated due to the extension. And also more recently, instead of using regular enriched uranium fuel, they've been using what's called high burn-up fuel, which is hotter, more radioactive, but it allows the fuel to stay in the fuel pool longer so they don't have to have so many outages for refueling. And that, I think, presents a problem today because Holtec, the company that is likely to receive the licenses to do the decommissioning, is noted for its rushed, quick and dirty decommissioning. And one of our biggest concerns is moving high burn up fuel out of the fuel pool into dry cast storage too soon. I wanted to get into the whole tech angle on it because they are noted for bragging to governments or those in charge of the money behind this, which is enormous, that they can do the decommissioning faster and cheaper than anyone else. And I think two words we never want to hear in connection with anything nuclear is fast and cheap because we need to be in this for a long haul beyond our ability to imagine. So what is the current status? Because you're moving into a new era now with Indian Point. What is the current status with Holtec and its desire or its likelihood of coming in and being the designated driver for the decommissioning process? Within the last couple of weeks, the Public Service Commission, Attorney General, Riverkeeper, Westchester County, and others have negotiated with Holtec what's called a joint proposal. The comments were due yesterday, and by next week, we will know whether or not the joint proposal is approved to transfer the licenses for all three units, but Indian Point two and three to Holtec International and its LLC subsidiaries, and that's extremely complicated. One good thing that came out of the joint proposal, this proposed second settlement agreement for the license transfer, is financial surety. And Holtec has a horrendous history 
of all kinds of malfeasance, bribery, mm-hmm. lying to public officials. They're under criminal investigation in New Jersey right now, which has Oyster Creek. They're an unreliable company, and we have fought hard to have the Public Service Commission consider their history. It's so much so that they were banned from doing business with the World Bank and the Tennessee Valley Authority, and there was a huge scandal in Canada involving Holtec because they are not an honest and reliable company. So we got some financial surety, but that doesn't change their history. And it also essentially gives somewhat of a green light for their bigger plan, which is over time to move high-level radioactive waste to their what they call consolidated interim storage facility in New Mexico. They will also be, when they decommission the facility, if this goes through, they'll be taking the reactor apart and the pieces and the reactor internals and other radioactive infrastructure on the site. They're planning to load onto barges, barge past New York City, put on a train, run it across the country and put all the communities along that route in danger. We believe in the safest possible on-site storage until we're absolutely sure that there is a safe place to move it and to only move it once. Consolidated interim storage right now is not allowed until a permanent repository is found. Yucca Mountain is pretty much off the table. And some of these decisions will be made into the future. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is while nuclear fuel was being used to generate electricity, it was also generating massive amounts of nuclear waste. And there never has been a good solution for that. But now we're at the point where the nuclear facilities are closing and something has to be done. So right now we're focused on, as I said, the safest possible on-site storage so we can figure out what, if anything, are the next steps. But shipping it across the country is extremely dangerous. And there's very serious environmental justice issue in Texas and New Mexico who have been burdened by exposure to radiation as far back as the original atomic testing of the Trinity facility. And then all the uranium mining and processing the workers and the community members have been exposed. And now Holtec's plan is to burden them further with waste from all over the country. And as I said, putting the communities along the way at risk of an accident during transportation. Is there an alternative company to Holtec? Because I know in the time I've been doing nuclear hot seat, the last 10 years, they were never mentioned. And then all of a sudden they popped up and they dominated the discussion ever since. And they've been the ones who's been getting all the money and getting all the jobs. Not that they're reliable. Is there anyone else? There are two main other companies. And there also is the alternative that Entergy could have kept the facility and hired a lot of the contractors that Holtec 
will, but Entergy wanted to relieve themselves of the liability. And Holtec has some very creative ways of turning that liability into a financial asset. But the companies that we're familiar with are at Zion, it was Energy Solutions, who have also done other facilities around the country. And Vermont Yankee was North Star, who's now partnered with Arano. They actually own the, the radioactive waste facility in West Texas. But they have done some of the New England facilities and others. None of them have a perfect track record, but also neither of those facilities have as horrendous and disrespectful track record with, as I mentioned, bribery, various scandals. And out at San Onofre, where Holtec canisters are being used, they actually had a very serious near-miss accident where they were taking a canister filled with high-level nuclear waste that was removed from the fuel pool and put into these thin-walled canisters. In the process of moving them into a concrete cask, it got stuck. The canister was hanging just over the cask and not able to slide into and be positioned in this concrete cask. And then when they did rearrange things so they could safely lower it, it was scraped. When a thin-walled canister gets scraped, it's very prone to corrosion. These nuclear issues are extremely complex. And I think most people think that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has it all under control. And that's exactly the opposite of reality. They are an industry-captured agency that grants waivers and exemptions almost always. You know, they give them out like candy at the risk of public health and safety. We've alerted Congress to that concern, but I think one of the good things about the joint proposal in New York is that it gives New York more control in a setting where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is really not following its mission and not providing adequate oversight, not even requiring that Holtec and other companies meet the very regulations that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is responsible for implementing. You mentioned public health and safety and getting back to Indian Point itself. What are some of the circumstances that are going to be alleviated now that as of today, Friday, April 30th, it is shutting down? Well, the main thing that will be alleviated is an issue with the reactor or all of the equipment used to, for example, the steam boilers, the transformers, all of that equipment will not be in operation. And so that means that those kinds of nuclear accidents will not occur. There won't be a meltdown. Those incidents won't occur. However, the fuel pools are still there. It's going to take a while for them to be unloaded. So a fuel pool fire could still occur. 
there are many other problems that don't end when, when the reactor is shut down and new ones that come about because of the actions that take place during decommissioning. I mentioned that they literally cut up the facility and they're planning to barge it, some of the equipment off-site that is radioactive. But when they're cutting things apart, there are radioactive dust that is released into the atmosphere that can, first of all, affect the workers if they're not adequately protected and also affect the community at large. So it is definitely safer. And by shutting down the plant, you're not compounding the problem of high-level nuclear waste by making more. But there are other very important issues there could be a radioactive leak from one of the canisters. What, what would we do about that? And so all these questions we're hoping to bring to a newly created New York State Decommissioning Oversight Board to look deeply into the new issues that are created by moving from the era of nuclear power generation to nuclear waste decommissioning. It certainly seems that you, like anyone involved in the fight against nuclear, is going to have your hands full for the duration with the issues that are coming up next. But taking a look at this moment right now, what are you going to do to celebrate? Uh, Well, what I'm going to do is be on another conference with Riverkeeper and some of the key people that over the last 20 years in particular have brought us to this point of greatly reducing the danger to peak skill and the surrounding community in the greater New York metropolitan area. And then also raising the new concerns that this new phase brings about. I would say there's a great sense of relief that we were able to accomplish this. I I think in my 20 years at Clearwater, it's one of the most important victories that we've had. And it really also honors the founders who were concerned about this 50 years ago. It moves us away from our dependence on fossil fuel and nuclear. And we've been very actively working to implement a renewable energy economy here in this region with storage and efficiency. It's not just about what we don't want, but what we do want and are actively participating in that transition and teaching others. Clearwater's MO is education, whether it's school kids on the boat or elected officials and other decision makers in the surrounding communities or the communities throughout the watershed. I think there's one other thing that people need to realize. There's a lot of debate in the environmental community about whether or not nuclear energy is a climate solution. And I think from what I've just said, you can understand how dangerous it is both in the generating phase and in the nuclear waste management, all the problems that that poses. So people who think that nuclear may be a climate solution are certainly ignoring those dangers. New nuclear is not a solution. It is not safe. All of the things that the industry that's 
trying to promote advanced nuclear reactors or small modular nuclear reactors. And unfortunately, as good as I would say the Biden administration is in many ways, I think it's magical thinking to consider nuclear a climate solution. I think that all of that investment needs to go into transitioning to renewable energy with storage, with efficiency, and doing it as quickly as possible. So we still have a lot of work to do, but it's an important landmark in not only the history of Indian Point and the Hudson River Valley, but I think it's a a landmark decision for the nation. And now it's just going to take a lot of hard work and scrutiny to make sure it's done as safely as possible. Nana Joe Green, first of all, my gratitude, our gratitude to you and the others for the decades of dedicated work that you have provided. And I'm delighted to have been able to talk with you on this historic day on behalf of the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Thank you so much. And thank you for bringing the information out because the mainstream media doesn't cover it the way you do so well. Thank you. That was Mana Joe Green, the Environmental Director for Hudson River Sloop Clearwater. For 20 years, she and her group and so many others have been fighting to shut down the last of the Indian Point nuclear reactors, and now it has been achieved as of last Friday, April 30th, 2021. We will have this week's second featured interview with Dr. Gordon Edwards, and it's a doozy, in just a moment. But first, the problems of the nuclear fuel cycle are both endless and forever. Even if we defeat COVID, improve the financial well-being and health of the populace, even turn around the climate crisis, the problems of the radioactivity created and released by nuclear reactors, weapons production, uranium mining, and the entire fuel cycle will remain with us for unimaginably long periods of time, as you'll learn more about during today's second featured interview. It's been going on under our noses for decades, since the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, and the nuclear industry is continuing to hide, confuse, or obfuscate its many transgressions against people and the environment. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We don't get distracted. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, in-depth, with continuity and context, in a way that mainstream media does not provide. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only program you can count on to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the nuclear industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. But even as we continue to pull ourselves out of what COVID has done to us financially, it continues to hit this show very hard, which makes your help keeping us going more important than ever. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is now where you can set up a monthly $5 donation, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So buy Nuclear Hot Seat a metaphoric cup of coffee. I promise it will not go for caffeine, but for social media reach and planning so we can get the show out even further. So please, do what you can now 
and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's second featured interview. We've spoken with Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility many times for this show. He has a clarity and an uncanny ability to distill complex scientific issues into an easy-to-grasp narrative that makes sense on first listening. Here, in recognition of the Indian Point closure, Dr. Edwards goes over the realities of decommissioning, a more thorough look at the contamination created by and at every single nuclear reactor in the world. He also shares some thoughts on how Japan and TEPCO could easily avoid dumping 1.25 million tons of Fukushima's radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. All it would take is patience and money, two things that TEPCO either does not have or does not wish to part with. We spoke with Dr. Gordon Edwards on Thursday, April 29, 2021, and he got right down to business. I just wanted to alert people to the fact that when you have a nuclear reactor, the fundamental fact about nuclear power is that it cannot generate electricity without simultaneously generating hundreds of radioactive poisons, which never were found in nature before 1940. These are brand new to the evolutionary context in which the human race has existed. And those are the dangerous materials that we have to keep out of the environment because radioactive materials are like little, the atoms are like little time bombs. They're like little miniature time bombs. Unlike most atoms, which are stable and which persist for millions and millions of years without ever changing, these radioactive atoms explode or disintegrate. And when they explode, they give off subatomic shrapnel, which is very damaging to living things. It breaks DNA molecules and other molecules at random and consequently causes a host of diseases. For example, cancer is all kinds of cancers are caused by radiation exposure and also damage to the reproductive cells, which can affect future generations as well as other things such as damage to the immune system, which makes people susceptible to all kinds of infectious diseases. So it's very important to keep these radioactive poisons out of the environment. And because they are elements, not compounds, they cannot be destroyed by any chemical method. So that the only solution that anybody has come up to for these materials is to simply keep them out of the environment of living things. Now, The core of the nuclear reactor contains the radioactive fuel, and this becomes millions of times more radioactive when it's used compared with when it's unused. The reason for that is because the broken atoms that are split, each one of these broken pieces of a uranium atom or a plutonium atom is a new radioactive material, which is uh, highly dangerous, and some of them last for only the blink of an eye, They're gone in no time, and some of them last for decades, such as cesium-137 and uh, strontium-90, and some of them last for hundreds of thousands of years, so that, in effect, we have a danger which is perpetual, a danger which is, for all practical purposes, eternal. And this is where all of the packaging, all of the shielding, all of the storage, uh, either above ground or underground, has to be very, very good. And we have to keep uh, 99.99% of this material out of the environment. Now, this becomes particularly difficult when a reactor reaches the end of its lifetime. 
not only do you have to remove the fuel, which contains most of the radioactive material, but all of the structures, all of the steel and the concrete and the pipes have become also radioactive. And they've become radioactive from a process called neutron activation. Neutrons are flying around inside the core of the reactor, splitting atoms and causing the release of energy, which can turn, be turned into electricity. But those stray neutrons, when they hit a non-radioactive material, they turn it into a radioactive material. So radioactive materials are created right inside the steel, right inside the concrete. And these materials are not in the spent fuel. They're in the structural materials, which are then cannot be recycled. They cannot be reused for any other purpose. They have to be treated as radioactive waste themselves. And they also have to be stored for hundreds of thousands of years. The intensity of the radiation, even after the irradiated fuel has been removed from the reactor, the intensity of the radiation is extraordinary. For example, here in Canada, we have reactors where you have what's called a thermal shield. A thermal shield is a heat shield near the core of the reactor to prevent uh, too much heat from escaping from the core. After shutdown, this thermal shield gives off 260,000 rems every hour. That would cause death in 5.5 seconds for a worker who was exposed to that without really heavy shielding. And that's after the irradiated fuel has been removed. The calandria shell, which is equivalent to the pressure vessel that you have in the American reactors, gives off 48,000 rems per hour. That would cause death in 29 seconds. The pressure tubes, which hold the fuel, just the metallic pressure tubes themselves give off 850 millirems per hour. That would cause death in 28 minutes. So we have a real problem here with these radioactive materials, structural materials. Now, when these structural materials are going to be packaged and stored as radioactive waste, they often have to cut them. And they are planning, for example, to segment the core materials in the core of a, of a nuclear reactor. For example, the Indian Point reactor, they plan to segment the large structures. Well, how do you cut something like that apart without causing a lot of dust? Here in Canada, we had a situation in 2009 where tubes, radioactive tubes, were removed from a reactor core, and they had to be cut up in order to be stored as waste. In the cutting operation, dust was released, and over 500 workers were inhaling plutonium-contaminated dust for a period of two and a half weeks without any protection because the uh, managers said that the radiation levels were low enough that it was not necessary for them to wear protective equipment or respirators. Well, <laughs> as it turns out, these 500-plus men are going to be carrying radioactive burdens in their lung for the rest of their lives as a result of this carelessness on the part of the regulator and on the part of the power plant operator, the owner. So it's very important that members of the public, members of the government, be involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the dismantling and to ensure that the conditions are safe for the workers they should be taking air samples all the time, and they should be analyzing those air samples immediately. Many people don't realize, uh, again, because they're not informed, that whereas penetrating radiation can kill you in a matter of seconds or minutes, as I mentioned earlier, there are other radioactive materials which are 
internal poisons. They are very, very difficult to measure with radiation equipment outside the body. But once they get inside the body, they can be extremely dangerous. Plutonium is one of those. Very hard to detect. That's why this contamination went on for two and a half weeks without any radiation monitors being triggered. The reason why? Plutonium does not give off penetrating radiation. It gives off a non-penetrating form of radiation called alpha radiation, which is hundreds of times more dangerous than the more penetrating gamma radiation. But it often escapes monitors. And so therefore, the workers track this home into their bedrooms and they carry it in their bodies as well. So this is a, a consideration that people should bear in mind when talking about dismantling a nuclear reactor. Another thing that's hard for many people to understand unless they've been told about it is that over the years, radioactive materials collect underneath the reactor and they can go quite deep into the ground. And so the ground itself, the soil under the reactor, is a reservoir of radioactive materials which have leaked into those areas. Now, some of these materials, like tritium, radioactive hydrogen, has a half-life of 12.3 years. That means it's going to be dangerous for a couple of centuries. And long after the plant has been dismantled, this material will continue to leak into the nearby water systems. But some of those materials, like carbon-14, have thousands of years lifetime. Carbon-14 has a 5,700-year half-life. Consequently, it's going to be there basically forever, and it's going to be leaking into the water systems forever afterwards. Unless the owner of the plant is forced to excavate the contaminated soil and to treat the contaminated soil itself as radioactive waste, then you're going to have continual leakage into the environment for many decades after the plant is shut down. So this is something that people should be aware of. In addition, it's also important for people to realize that a community that has become dependent upon a reactor being in the vicinity and contributing to the local payroll, contributing to the local economy through the jobs it provides and so on, uh, there can be very serious repercussions, social repercussions, when the plant closes down. Tomorrow, Indian Point is going to completely shut down. The third unit will be shut down on April the 30th, which is, I'm speaking to you on April 29th. And it's very important that the community itself have financial support going forward after the shutdown uh, to compensate for the impact on the community. Indian Point, Indian Point, which has, in New York State, they have managed to achieve through the cooperative agreement with involving the governor of the state, so that money will be available to ease the burden of making the transition from a nuclear community to a non-nuclear community. And basically, that's about all I have to say about the decommissioning problem. It's a much more serious problem than many people realize. Here are some of the materials which are created inside the structural materials, inside the steel, inside the concrete. Nickel 59, which is created inside the steel, has a 76,000-year half-life. Nickel 63 has a 101,000-year half-life. Niobium 94 has a 20,300-year half-life. Chlorine 36, which is created inside the concrete, has a 301,000-year half-life. Calcium-41 has a 102,000-year half-life. So these are extremely long-lived materials which are not in the irradiated fuel but in the actual structural materials. 
And people have to learn to realize that nuclear energy truly is the ultimate in the throwaway society because these materials, which were even used to build the reactor and which were completely non-radioactive when the reactor was built, have now become very dangerous, long-lived radioactive waste and will remain unusable for hundreds of thousands of years to come. It's really like guaranteeing that we're going to kill ourselves with nuclear waste, even if we stop using the technology, even if we do whatever it's going to take for society to collapse and us to end up being back in the Stone Age. This stuff is going to outlast us all. Well, I don't like to think of it as killing us all. I, think I like to think of it as being a challenge to us that we have to appreciate because the nuclear industry tries to hide these facts. They don't want people to understand what the problem really is because they just want to get rid of it. They want to just walk away from it. They want to abandon this waste. And society has to realize that that's irresponsible, that we can't abandon this waste. We have to keep an eye on it. We have to maintain it in a monitored and retrievable fashion. The good news is that we do know how to package it so that it'll stay out of the environment. And if we know how to package it properly in the first place, then we know how to repackage it later on. And so uh, the concept of rolling stewardship, which my organization is promoting, is that this is an intergenerational problem. It's not a problem of the nuclear industry. It's a problem of society. And for this reason, the nuclear industry should not be trusted with the dismantling of nuclear reactors because they want to hide the problem and they want to disguise the difficulties and they don't really, uh, their primary concern is not to make sure that the workers are safe or that the environment is safe, but that their investment is safe. So it's very important that uh, society have a direct oversight role and ensure that everything is done properly for society, for our grandchildren's grandchildren, and not just for the uh, sake of the nuclear industry. I would like to mention something about the underground contamination a large part of the contamination underground, you might call it a kind of an invisible lake of contamination underneath the reactor, a pool, if you prefer, a pool of contamination. Much of the material in this pool is radioactive hydrogen in the form of radioactive water molecules because water molecules are H2O, and those are non-radioactive in, no, in normal occurrence. However, the nuclear reactor creates radioactive versions of non-radioactive elements. Let me just be clear about this. Cesium is a naturally occurring element that you find in the soil anywhere. It's not radioactive. What the nuclear reactor does is it creates radioactive cesium. Now, what's the difference between radioactive cesium and non-radioactive cesium? Well, the difference is simply this that radioactive cesium has unstable atoms. These atoms are disintegrating or exploding and damaging whatever living cells might be nearby, whereas the non-radioactive cesium doesn't do that. So when the industry says, for example, that the contamination is really not any higher than background radiation, that's a lie because in the background there is no radioactive cesium. The natural background does not have radioactive cesium in it. So it's not comparable to background levels because there are no background levels. The same thing goes with many of the other radioactive materials. Now, in the case of tritium, the problem with this is that there's no water system, there's no municipal water system which can separate the radioactive tritium, 
out of the ordinary water. You can't filter the radioactive tritium out of ordinary water because it's also water. It's just simply radioactive water. You can't filter water from water. So the result is that this radioactive material ends up in everybody's body, whether it's a pregnant woman, whether it's a young infant, whether it's an old man. They're all going to get it in their bodies, and that goes for all of nature's creatures as well. As a matter of fact, hydrogen is one of the basic building blocks of all of our organic molecules, including the DNA molecule. So the tritium, the radioactive hydrogen, actually gets incorporated into the biological molecules inside our body, including the DNA molecules. And as a result, they have very long-term implications for what kind of damage they might do and how they might damage the human gene pool. And it's not right to just leave this loose in the environment underneath the reactor. It should be removed. It should be excavated and stored as radioactive waste. Some people who are listening to this program may remember or may have read or may have heard that near the Fukushima accident in Japan, which happened 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, 2011, they have over 1 million tons of radioactively contaminated water, which they want to dump into the Pacific Ocean. And one of the main contaminants of those 1 million tons of contaminated water is tritium. But tritium is not the only thing in that contaminated water. There's also smaller amounts of all of the other radioactive materials I've mentioned, 42 of them, in fact, including strontium-90, cesium-137, plutonium-239, and the carbon-14, which has a 5,000-year half-life that I mentioned earlier, and which is also one of the basic building blocks of life, of organic molecules. So when people think about these aspects, just ask yourself the question, why is it necessary to dump a million tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean? There's only one reason, and that's because the company, TEPCO, which owned the nuclear power plants, which caused the meltdown, they don't want to do it anymore. So it's really for the convenience of the nuclear industry. They could continue storing that water for the next 200 years, and in the course of 200 years, that amount of tritium would be reduced by a factor of almost a million. So just by waiting, just by waiting and storing it and taking your time, you can ensure that most of the tritium disappears before it ever comes in contact with living things. It's a question of priorities. Do you care about life or do you care about the profits of the nuclear industry? And that's the choice. And if you leave it in the charge in the hands of the nuclear industry, you can be pretty sure which side they're going to come down on. That was Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. We will have a link up to his website, ccnr.org, and some of his articles on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 515. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. First, correction of an omission from last week's second Chernobyl anniversary show. Dr. Ian Fairley shared a blog post he wrote that succinctly lays out the problems with Chernobyl. We will have a link up to his paper added to last week's show, number 514, and what the heck, it'll be on this week's website as well. Nuclear Hot Seat business podcast rankings during the last week have been very encouraging. They showed us moving up to number 33 in the United Kingdom, number 33 in Belgium, 35 in the Republic of Korea, 
47 in Japan, and on top of that, got a note from a listener in the Solomon Islands. It's good to know that this show is reaching people around the world. And last week, I was able to attend several of the Native American Forum Zoominars. They were highly informative and eye-opening, and when they were available for download, we'll let you know and provide a link. But there's one moment I need to acknowledge that struck me very deeply. One of the speakers was Wallace Grand Council Chief Ron Tremblay of the Wallace Nation in what is generally known as New Brunswick. When he was in discussion with tribal elders and other chiefs about the nuclear dangers they face and the rolling force to site nuclear reactors on their lands, they realized that there was no word in their language for nuclear. After much discussion, they came up with the term Uzganu Zanakwak. It means forever dangerous. Uzganu Zanakwak. Truth in language. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 4th, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, known as ICANN, counterpunch.org, texastribune.org, santafenewmexican.com, kingsbayplowshares.org, reuters.com, abc.net.au, nbmediacoop.org, weatherchannel.com, Campaign for Peace, and the tools and fools at the utterly captured by the nuclear industry, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Put regulatory in quotes. Nuclear Hot Seat is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. But the easiest way to get it is to sign up to have it delivered via email every week to your inbox. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and your email address, and you will get Nuclear Hot Seat as soon as it posts every week. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to the website, click on the red button, follow the prompts, do what you can to support us. It's always appreciated and it's always put to good use. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that radioactive nuclear waste is forever. So let's stop making any more of it right now. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.